Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And our annual Christmas shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, not taking place as usual in a run of a week or two weeks of live shows like we do every December. But this year we are doing a one-off 24-hour show on December 12th. As always, all the profits will go to charity, so you can go to crowdfund.co.uk slash nine lessons and donate there, and there's rewards and stuff for doing so as well. And you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to get some tickets to come along and see it live. There's going to be a small number of socially distanced tickets available to watch certain blocks of the 24 hours live and that's also where we'll be posting any news and uh, guest lineups and all that sort of stuff already confirmed to appear uh robin is hosting for the entire 24 hours and there'll be helen chesky and beck hill and josie long and chris hadfield and brian cox and helen sharman and sharon d clark and mark watson and tanita tickram and sophie ellis bexter and jim al and chris jackson and loads 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 more so go to cosmicchannels.com slash nine lessons to check that out and now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to another Sunday Science Q&A. This one is a Trailblazer special. You will find out more about that shortly. Uh, and also, just a quick question for everyone watching that. Has it, have any of you had a Gliscliss in your house? You know, a Gliscliss, they're the... the uh, also known as edible dormice, particularly amongst the ancient Romans who found them very edible. Anyway, they are extremely noisy and sound as big as a large rat, perhaps even uh, the famous uh, Vietnamese man-sized rat that they have in uh, Coney Island in one of the attractions there, which they say was more feared than a sniper's bullet. Sadly, that attraction was closed on the day I went to Coney Island. Anyway, we've got lots of questions and possibly some answers today on the Sunday Science Q&A. Uh, a few notes beforehand, just to remind you, uh, if you can support us via Patreon, yeah, 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 it's the begging bit at the beginning of all podcasts. That's the way it works. Uh, so if you, ha- if you can support us, that's fantastic. As you probably know, uh, all live work basically doesn't really exist uh, at the t- for the time being. I should currently have been on tour with my show uh, Satanic Rights Robin Ince at the moment uh, but I'm not. Josie would have been on tour and various others. Um, if you can support us, that's fantastic. We've got Patreon, various different ways you can support us for our Patreon. Um, we have uh, less than 2% of people who watch and listen to our shows uh, kind of in any way are able to financially support us. Uh, if you could, if we can get that up to 5% who are able 
able to give us some patron support that is absolutely fantastic but obviously we will continue to make as much stuff that is free to access as possible because i realize that some of you uh, do not have any spare cash so it's all fine it all balances out in the end also we've had another announcement in on wednesday we announced because nine lessons and carols for curious people uh is not going to be going ahead as a, a kind of long run theatrical run uh in london this year we are in some ways it's a better thing because now it's accessible to you wherever you may be in the world we're doing a 24 hour version of the nine lessons of carols for curious people many of the people you've seen on the sunday science q a uh will be there throughout that 24 hours it will be live i will actually be hosting it probably from as everything works out from king's place with some live guests there as well and then we'll be going around the world to people in america in the us in canada uh, all over the shop uh norway etc uh, and so far we've only announced a few of the guests but we'll uh, we have got uh, ben goldacre is going to be doing it and uh, chris hadfield is going to be doing it and helen charman is going to be doing it and sophie ellis baxter is going to be doing it and uh, mark watson's going to be telling me how to do a 24-hour show and uh, tanita tickram is going to be there uh, have i mentioned brian cox of course you know he'll be there i just can't get rid of him brian cox cbe now yes i'll have to have even more deference than i had for him last week uh also a reminder there's a tip jar at the bottom of this if you want to ask any any questions then just go to twitter at cosmic shambles you can put the questions there or you can put them in the chat box and trent will make sure trent uh, our producer do say hello to him uh he will uh, make sure that i get any of the questions that you want to ask live and um, also mention the science book shambles where it's another there's a lot of trailblazing this week because uh it is another trailblazer uh becky rag sykes has written a really fantastic uh book called kindred all about uh our new and, and a rapidly advancing understanding of uh, neanderthals and it is an absolutely fantastic book. And I talked to her about that. And that is going out on Tuesday. And you can also hear some of the previous ones. Uh, Paul Nurse, Nobel Prize winner, Paul Nurse. Joe Marchant's lovely book about the human cosmos as well. I've talked about that. That's up this week. And finally, next week, it's psychology and uh, mental health on the Sunday Science Q&A. And our guests will include Dr. Dean uh, Burnett and... Uh, Professor Nav Cooper as well, Capur, sorry, uh, is going to be on as well. So if you want to start sending questions for that, don't put them in the chat box, though. In fact, don't, in fact, don't send questions till four o'clock. It'll just get the whole thing confused. And then I'm going to ask a lot of paleontologists, archaeologists and bubble physicists, various different things uh, about the amygdala and how that affects our day to day running. And we're not dealing with that today. Anyway, uh, our guest today. Well, first of all, of course, uh, not a guest, uh, a regular um, friend and <laughs> bubble advisor, Helen Chersky. Hello, Helen. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm very happy to be uh, Cosmic Shambles regular. Um, that thing in the corner that doesn't seem to go away. It's still here. Really? One of those. people Like come a gliss gliss. Like a gliss gliss in the old fuse box. <laughs> yes, but I don't go around tapping and scaring people in the middle of the night. At least not yet. That's what you say. Yes. You probably use that telekinesis that the whole of science has been built around to deny its existence. Um. <laughs> Yes. Well, I come from the so my, the physics laboratory I did my PhD in is uh, has a Nobel Prize winner. It's slightly it keeps a bit quiet about because he sort of went down the telekinesis route after getting a Nobel Prize in physics for something very clever and very fundamental and um, sort of couldn't deal with the publicity and now thinks that telekinesis is a thing. And, and they're, they're ever slightly embarrassed about him. <laughs> Who's that? What's that? Who's that? Which one's that? Oh, <laughs> he's behind you. <laughs> the um because that that's quite a common thing i've seen amongst physicists you know i'm still waiting for it with brian that that bit where i mean it's it, 
thing, I suppose, in, in, in one way, where you see minds that have an incredible depth of understanding about one thing, but at the same time, the brilliance of the mind can go into an area which seems, you know, frankly, uh, overly strange. Well, I think, I mean, it is one of those difficult things that we see in many areas of life where once people get into the situation where no one really says no to them, so no one's really going to tell a Nobel Prize winner that they're wrong. And I think, in you know, it's worse in other areas, but I suspect there was a little bit of that going on. Um, anyway, I've got a show and tell. Shall I not embarrass my old physics lab? Uh, I feel a bit bad because... Take the uh, show and tell using the power of your mind. That will be good. I c- <laughs> Well, obviously, you can't see what's going on around the screens. You've no idea how many things are floating around my uh, my room here. So anyway, my show and tell is a bit more of a question it raised in my mind. And I discovered that I couldn't find an answer. So I'm going to tell you about the question. So, you know, in the nature of lockdown, we all walk around our flats, wherever we live, our houses, and uh, we look at things maybe a little bit more closely than we normally do. So I was looking at this. Now, this whole thing, let me show you, is just a little paddle. So actually, I won this as, as a prize from my uh, Outrigger Paddling Club a few years ago. But it's not a real paddle that we would use. It's a ceremonial thing. But I was looking at the colours of the wood on here. Now, I think this is stained, but it made me go. Sorry, I've got two stained show and tell. It made me go and get my chessboard. Um, now, this is this is quite a nice chessboard. I bought it for myself as a present for finishing my PhD. And it's a rosewood. And I can't actually remember what the light colour is, but... This is the genuine colour of the wood. We can really see that there is super dark wood and super light coloured wood. And so I went around and I went and had a nosy in the scientific literature this week, just out of curiosity to see how much we know about why wood is different colours. And the answer is we sort of know and we sort of don't. So there's lots of um, flavonoids and uh, things like tannins in wood, which are darker. Um, it turns out that no one knows why ebony is black. This isn't ebony, but ebony, you know, is famous for being this super black wood. Everyone thought it was something to do with iron and tannins and people very confidently said it's iron and tannins. And then they discovered there are no tannins in ebony. So there isn't a clear scientific answer on what makes ebony black. But the reason that I thought this was worth talking about is because as I dug, dug around in the literature, you know, different types of wood have all these different um they're mostly flavonoids. They're, they're useful things that are used for chemical messaging, actually, within the tree. Some of them have antifungal properties. You know, they're all hanging around in different trees for different reasons. The reason people are studying them is to see whether they can breed trees that are different colours. And I thought that was such a lovely idea. And obviously, you, there might be limits on the tree colour that you can get to. I don't think anyone is in the business of, of making blue trees anytime soon. But just the idea that, you know, obviously, all of these chemical messengers are you know they're in the tree for a reason but they obviously come from they're expressed from genes right there is a reason they're there and so I just really like the idea of you know all the mad things that people have tried to breed I just really like the idea of people going poking about in the genetics of trees to see if they can breed a tree that's a different color and it might turn into a terrible idea like those people that breed cats to try and make them look like tigers or something I'm sure someone does that but it was just you know the the chemistry of trees it turns out is really complicated all the molecules that make wood this color are functional they do things within the tree they carry things they carry messengers they keep out pests um, and the color is a side effect but I just yeah I just quite like the idea of colored trees so that's my show and tell that's lovely. And uh, it's a beautiful chessboard. You deserve that treat for finishing your PhD. Um, we're also joined 
evolutionary paleobiologist who has uh, a new series on uh, on Channel 4, uh, Bone Detectives, which you can see on Channel 4, I think, on Saturday nights. You can also obviously go on uh, all four to catch up as well. And uh, I've, I've got a question for you before your show and tell, Tori. I have to ask mm. this because on the walk that I had with my son today, uh, he was telling me about one of his friends who said, oh, when I was five, he was, he, he's 12 now. When I was five, I was such a fool. I wanted to be a paleontologist. But now I realise, of course, I want to be a paleobiologist. That's the kind <laughs> of foolishness that this particular friend of my son, he feels that at five, he really had not thought it through. And then my son said, is it can you have a, as a well as archaeologist and archaeobiologist? But I suppose you wouldn't. So these definitions, let's start off. Can you, can you just tell me paleobiologist, the divide between that and what would be considered to be paleontologist if there is one? I suppose it's more of a kind of focusing in in terms of a subset of paleontology. But in general, paleontologists are all kind of interested in the biology of the animals they're looking at. I kind of vary. Sometimes I call myself a paleobiologist if I'm more wanting to talk about the biology questions. So using paleontology as a tool to answer questions that might otherwise be considered biological, like, you know, how does evolution work? You know, what are the mechanisms at play there? Or why is biodiversity in the world today the way it is and the patterns we understand? In that sense, it would, I would maybe phrase it as paleobiology to flag up the biology aspect of it all. But paleontology is basically the study of, of the past, like the past, the entire past of life on Earth, by looking at extinct animals. And so there's, if it's, that's not biological, I don't know what is. So it, I'd say it's a, a specialism within it. People, uh, people, people who tend to work on biological questions and use the fossil record as a tool rather than the other way around, studying it for its own right, maybe. Right. So that's so in terms of archaeology, is there again, I, I, is, is that would you say that archaeology is predominantly about the unearthing of, of human endeavours and is is more rooted to homo sapien civilization in, 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 the, in a broad sense? So, of course, I would say that archaeology is, is a very minor subset of paleontology. <laughs> um, but Susie <laughs> might disagree with that one. I mean, it's interesting. So, Su so we'll, you'll come to Susie Birch in a second. Uh, Susie would describe herself I think as a zoo archaeologist or, or a archaeozoologist is it either way around and there's a fine line really there between what's a zoo archaeology and what's paleontology and in many respects all it really is is that if you're a zoo archaeologist you're tending to look at animals particularly for their relationship to people but of course you end up crossing over so I'm an ice age paleontologist and in many sites there will be human presence and at that point it becomes a very grey area as to what's going on and again it maybe depends on the focus of your questions whether you're interested in purely or to understand the context of the human environment there the human um, excavation element you're excavating a human settlement of some kind and the animals inform you about humanity or whether you're there to investigate say the animals and the environment and humans are just a part of that ecosystem and, it's, and I think that it's interesting and of course the, the line becomes less blurry as you go further back in time and it's easier to sort of separate, say, you have a few elements of material culture and no evidence of domestication. But where both Susie and I work, our, you know, our, our research actually crosses over. We even collaborate because we kind of cross over at the end of our time ranges of interest. And now let's find out in terms of the time range of interest, your show and tell. Me? Oh, right. OK, so my show and tell. I'm actually going out of my comfort zone in terms of knowledge area to open up a broader issue here. And this is something I borrowed from my daughter. I did ask permission. She kind of looked at me a bit sceptically. It's something very special that she found a couple of weekends ago on her fifth birthday. Now, she is a very lucky person. So let's see if I can get it in here and see if you can see it. Can you see what that oh, is? Lovely. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? 
what a lucky girl she was because there's always luck involved in fossil hunting although you need sharp eyes too now she found this on a beach in dorset and it's a pyrotized ammonite and i'm flagging this up here because even though this is probably what somewhere between 100 and like probably about 192 million years old which is a long way out of my comfort zone i get a bit iffy beyond about three million years ago um but yeah this is here because i wanted to talk about not only the wonder of fossil hunting for children as a way to explore the natural world um and actually a way for anyone to it's so exciting to spot something like this on the beach i mean look how pretty it is in and of itself but also just how amazing it is that it's still there after all that time um but also because we were doing this just outside lime regis which is where a woman called mary anning is famously from probably one of the most if not the most famous historical paleontologist in the world and i want to flag her up as a part of the trailblazer mission and mary anning has got quite an important um I think she's, she means a lot to many, many paleontologists, particularly many women paleontologists, because she was this pioneer. I think she's a pioneer for women, a pioneer for working class outsider scientists everywhere. But also she is somebody who um, has carried the banner for those groups for a long time. And that's where Trailblazers becomes interesting to me and what we do at Trailblazers there in relation to her story. Because it's very easy to tell the story of Mary Anning as somebody who has been forgotten. Everyone always starts the story of Mary Anning as being this person, a pioneer who was forgotten or who was ignored, which is not the case at all. I don't think there's been a point in the last 200 odd years where people have forgotten Mary Anning. I mean, she was a celebrity in her own time. She was famous the world over. She knew it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a wonderful record of when the King of Saxony came to visit um, Lyme Regis and he went to visit her fossil shop because it was you know, one of the renowned fossil places to visit at that time. It was kind of part of the tour. And um, when they were there, there were amazed by the specimens that she had it was so wonderful and his doctor who was traveling with the king of saxony records in his journal of the trip um that they asked for her signature and she wrote it down mary anning and then she said she said i am known throughout europe like this and it's basically yeah you know, have you how could you not have heard of me before asking for my name that kind of thing don't you know who i am because she was famous she was famous in her own time she was um like she was renowned she was infamous in some ways i mean everyone loved telling stories about the latest crazy jape she got up to there are letters between other scientists i mean the philpot sisters elizabeth philpot wrote to mary buckland telling all about Mary's latest scrape going down to hunt for fossils and always getting run over by a cart but not to worry she was out there in the field again and then you know they're, they're writing about her talking about her she's part of this bigger group and she was famous then and she considered she continued to be famous the whole time through and whenever people want to talk about paleontology they often mention her I suspect there are very few people who can name a male paleontologist from that time period but who would probably recognize the name of Mary Anning and she's that kind of celebrity status but that doesn't change the fact that she was still an outsider scientist despite her fame and despite the fact that we talk about it all the time you can't get around the fact that she was poor she was kind of a bit of a pet of all those more kind of refined uh, upper class gentlemen and gentlewomen paleontologists they like to have her in their area but she never was really part of their league not really um she's and i think maybe in some way she's still a bit of a pet you know we still talk about her as though she's this um you know she's something we can wheel out to make a point we've never really welcomed her into the fold and that's always the case with the stories we tell to a certain degree because the actual critical thing is that 
is that it wasn't just Mary who was doing paleontology at that time. We've already mentioned Elizabeth Philpott, who wrote to Mary Buckland. And at the same time, in you know, Mary Anning's you know, sort of world of, of experience and knowledge, there was another woman, Charlotte Murchison. And then just a few years later, not quite exactly the same time, but they were contemporaries, we never really crossed over. There was another woman called... Um, Barbara Hastings, who's often known as the jolly fast marchioness because she was a real gambler and a kind of like a lady who liked to party. But she was um, looking at hunting for fossils a bit further along the coast, down to sort of more around Portsmouth Way. And so there were a lot of people out on the beaches hunting for fossils at the same time as Mary Anning was, not making their living out of it like she was. I mean, she was the first professional really to do that in a kind of way that really made a living, I think, for all these women. They were doing it because it was um, it was genteel and interesting. But they still made really important contributions to the development of the field. We don't remember any of their names. OK, like I said, probably also most of us wouldn't have heard of um, Charlotte Murchison or even Roderick Murchison. Or they wouldn't have heard of Mary Buckland, but also maybe not of William Buckland. And so it's not it's not just the names that's the issue. It's more the idea of it. When you think of a geologist or a paleontologist from that period, your general idea is that it must have been a bloke, I think. Right? But there are actually an awful lot of women out there contributing and taking part and looking for fossils we've forgotten that concept of them and that was the reason why Susie me Becky and Brenna Hassett who you know, is the only trailblazer you haven't got on this week um like why we started trailblazers just to kind of tell all the stories in aggregate to beat basically to kind of like bombast you know, sort of blast these names at people these faces at people these images at people so that when they looked at our website you just scroll down and 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 just be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of contribution by women since the beginning of all of these fields because that's the critical thing if you hate take a name like Mary Anning and you basically make her unique you make her special you talk about her as being forgotten as being this thing that you're lifting up and putting into the limelight again it gives people the opportunity to say things are different now she was just a one-off but you know now we're, we're different we're less prejudiced now it's all going to be fine in a few years time because look at all the women coming through in their degrees and, and yeah and yeah yeah and it's not necessarily paying forward to professorship it makes you want to say to them how long do we have to wait how long? Another 150 years? <laughs> Another 200 years where you've forgotten all of these basic general contributions? Because if we forget in aggregate the whole contribution of a group of people to a field, if you rewrite your history in your mind by saying it was all done by white blokes, then you aren't necessarily properly appreciating just how bad the situation is in terms of diversity and I think that's true across the board in many different in many different areas of diversity as well it's not about the names Tori is there something here about accessibility because it's I mean no it strikes me and, it strikes and maybe me. I'm wrong and, and maybe I'm wrong on this that um one of the things about fossil hunting is that it's accessible to anyone you don't need to have gone to the right university you don't need to have gone to the right school you don't really need to know the right people and it shows that actually if there's accessibility to the basics then everyone can do well and, yeah, and I think, it highlights that it's the gateway that is the problem. I think that's very, very true. I mean, that's a great thing about all, I mean, in many ways, about many field sciences. Access the kind of like the inner sphere of the kind of academic study of it, if you, if you, if you want to. I mean, it is interesting, as of course, Mary 
yeah, time-wise, and it's why it's you know why she was so famous in her own time. It's because she she was at a time when suddenly natural history became really cool. It was really fashionable, and people wanted to. Yeah, you know, it was the beginnings of these fields, the beginnings of, of geology, beginnings of paleontology. I have to say before I go on though, there's this, it gets really ridiculous. I mean, the level to which people will go to try and forget the concept, or or to try to make the point that women weren't necessarily involved in these areas. And it's something that Susie turned up when we were very early on in the days of Trailblazers, because we, we were trying to find images of women from that time. And it's you know it's not the easiest thing to do and Susie turned up this amazing photograph by William Fox Talbot one of the pioneers of photography and um, she found it she just typed in like women geologist and uh, she found it and um, she found it on a photo- photography site and it's called the geologist this picture and um, she found it and it underneath the caption said correct me if I'm wrong Susie um, this picture originally contained a woman but I've cropped her out because it was probably his mother his mother yes. <laughs> and, that, and it was called <laughs> the geologist the, the, the geologist the, the first photograph of geologists right as, yeah, as a name as a, as a term the beginning of that field the first photograph of them contained a woman one man and one woman and yet people were so convinced themselves so much that women weren't part of it that he actually cropped her out <laughs> anyway. well we will um there will be links under under this to trailblazers so people can anyone who doesn't know this can anyone who doesn't know the site already uh, can go and find out more and also we should say though brenna's not is the only one not on this week she was on two weeks ago and as usual she had uh, some uh archaeological dental records to show us uh, from some particularly grotesque teeth which is always one of the things that she uh, loves pulling out of that, of that particular bag um dr Suze birch you've been mentioned already uh you you finished this this particular um quartet and uh, you are associate professor anthropology and geography at the university of georgia um I'm going to get you straight into this then, your show and tell. Yes, well, my show and tell is actually also related, is related to my research um, tangentially, I guess, but it's a, I actually brought a muntjac skull here, just hold it up, you know, so you can see the very distinctive canines, um, and I think this is a species of deer that's familiar to most people in the UK, and uh, maybe not so much in the US, um, but, you know, I did my, my PhD at Cambridge, and so I was living um, in, in England for a few years there. And we used to have one in our back garden, uh, that would be a regular visitor. Uh, and I just love, I love this species because I think it's, you know, it's really interesting being that it's aberrant being a deer with fangs, you know, you don't think of deer with fangs, um, very often. And, um, but I also like it because it represents, uh, you know, again, the role of humans in shaping and affecting the natural world being that it is an invasive species that was, uh, brought to the island and has now is actually more common than any native deer species. Um, and people, that's something that people have been doing for thousands of years. So we've seen it with uh, several different kinds of wild animals uh, like fallow deer as well throughout Europe, um, but also most of our domesticated species, which is what I uh, work on. I look at the initial domestication um, and then spread of domestic species uh, throughout uh, Europe. And so it's just a fun kind of specimen that I, I have to remind me of of those sorts of uh, things. <laughs> it's one. It's a very large skull as well, isn't it? For a muntjac, that's a full adult, I presume. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, so and male too. So fangs, females. Then? What's with Sorry. the fangs? Why has it got fangs? So that's the thing that makes it such an interesting adaptation because they're you know traditionally obviously deer they usually have much larger antlers and they're using those the males to compete for access to females. So their you know antlers tend to be obviously more robust the older the animal is. He's fought several generations and he's proven he's virile and everything. Um, but in the munchak, they're greatly reduced. They're almost, you know, they're these tiny little things. And it's actually the canines that they use to symbolize, you know, to sort of fight 
um, and show their um, superiority over other males. So they're actually for, for mating um, purposes and they're not. As a, this, these are mating. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that sounds aggressive. For everyone concerned. Well, well, last yeah. time she had one of the skulls of a BG, a BG, and there were much the same things said about that as well. <laughs> um, the uh, can I just ask her because I was brought up in 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 Hertfordshire, and there were a lot of muntjac around there, and I was always told, but this might be wrong, that uh, the reason there was because many of them had escaped from Whipsnade Zoo, which isn't that 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 far away. So, where did the introduction begin, which has now led to them being in the wild? the in the the source I, I there was a um sort of so-called escape there was a single introduction event from what i understand um and then the population grew from there and how long ago was this that i'm not sure i'm not sure well, um recent it sounds very recent. yeah yeah it's it's the last few decades i would say um you know maybe early yeah i don't know I would answer that because my dad told me when I was growing up, but he also told me that all guardsmen at Buckingham Palace had pigeon-toed feet. So I don't trust him. So I'm not <laughs> going to bother answering that question. <laughs> bother answering that question. Um, let's get straight into. We've got lots of questions from. Uh, let's start off with something that uh, may a megafauna question. So uh, everyone, chip in. Whoever wish to, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Susie. This is uh, uh, from Poetic Polymath, uh, along with Megatherium, Moa, and massive Australian marsupials. What are the most interesting of the extinct Quaternaria megafauna? Oh, well, for me, I mean, of a, I guess I would give it more of a personal rather than professional response because that's sort of, I'm working more at the tail end of that. They've sort of all died off right around when I'm picking up. Um, so my my favorite would probably be, I'd have to say, Smilodon, uh, saber-toothed tiger in North America. And that's just a sort of childhood. Uh, I, I distinctively remember... Um, you know, in third grade or something like that, having to write an essay if you could be any animal. And I chose going back in time and being a Smilodon. So I think part of that was actually because I wanted to go back and see everybody, but I didn't want to worry about being eaten, you know? So I was like, this is a good, this is a good choice. I'll just be at the top of the food chain and I can observe the, the mammoth and the giant beaver and uh, so on. That's <laughs> why she's, my, and she's been yeah, success, yeah. successful ever since. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There, there is a approach. approach. <laughs> but there's that strange thing, isn't it? That, that when we see images of extinct animals, we go, "Wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be in a world where they existed?" And and we can then be very blasé about some of the, you know, equally ab absurd and magnificent-looking creatures. There's a strange thing that happens once you see something is is part of of an archaeological uh, or paleontological record rather than something that exists now actually a little understudied in terms of thinking about the later sort of Paleolithic and end of the last ice age, you know, this, we think a lot of times um, about humans struggling against the environment, overcoming, you know, sort of the, the glacial um, conditions and so on. But there was also a lot of predators to be concerned about. And we had, you know, things like hyenas um, and cave lions and cave bears to be concerned about as well. And thinking about human kind of predator interactions, uh, something I think doesn't get enough research really. <laughs> That blasé thing is a really interesting point because I mean I think that's that's definitely maybe a perspective yeah. perspective from people who live in a country that's already really 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 impoverished in its terms of its animals its fauna so living in the, coming from a place like the UK in particular so yeah that's yeah we're we're at the tail end of, of, of a lot of extinction 
There's a lot of our big scary animals that have been driven to extinction by the fact that humans have been here in large numbers for quite a long time. And we still, you know, we still get a real sense of wonder, like a real sense of wonder from, you know, watching nature documentaries, or if you're lucky enough to get to go somewhere where you where you come face to face with a big animal. But you don't really, really appreciate, I think, what it feels like to live in the midst of such incredible richness and diversity from, from our perspective. It's just a kind of a, a voyeuristic thing. It's something we're part, part of and separate from. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's that idea of shifting baselines, isn't it? We don't know what we've lost necessarily because we've never experienced it. But I, I remember really vividly my very first, it was really my first experience traveling abroad. I'd had one tiny trip with my family. We didn't do foreign holidays or anything that wasn't wasn't possible but um, in my undergraduate I got I organized an expedition to go to French Guiana and um, we spent the summer there like sort of three months over the sort of two and a half months over the summer in the jungle and the guy we worked with there he was like a young he was a, a young um, French Guianan and he was he was convinced but about he was really sure that we must be so sad and he was so sorry for us living in a place like Britain where there was nothing wonderful to look at nothing and he was so angry and so, so worried about the potential impact of deforestation on his forest as he saw it, because he just couldn't couldn't even get contemplate that the, the, the sadness and the and the, the trauma of live of, of turning his country into something as boring as Britain like that. And there's yeah. also this thing though, isn't there, which is that we spend a lot of time pushing wildlife out, wildlife like, oh, people out. Go, like, oh, people go, oh, it's terrible. We haven't got any, you know, beavers left or whatever it is. If you show them a spider. The thing most people want to do is get rid of it as quickly as physically possible. And there's, there's this really, it, there's a sort of sanitization of it. And and I feel a lot of this is actually about, you know, I'm not saying we should all live with spiders everywhere. I don't mind. I am. But, <laughs> but it's like, you know, if you see a spider go, oh, it's a cool spider, right? That is a cool thing that you've got. Rather than trying to push it away, concrete over it, cover it up, hide it. There's a source, you know, we've done very well in the modern world of engineering ourselves to be separate to nature. And I think part of appreciating what we could have and what we maybe had had is just allowing ourselves to get a bit closer to it, you know, clearly within the regions of not, you know, not spreading disease or whatever it is. Not that spiders do, as far as I know. But, you know <laughs> it's that we've put so much effort into pushing it away. It's actually quite a big shift. And what I find, you know, you work in those places where there is a lot more beautiful wildlife is that people aren't, it's not an us and them thing. They don't go, it, it's over there. And I think that's also part of the thing with the, the the looking at, you know, animals from the past and what animal would you be and that kind of thing. It's like, it's safe because it's over there. You don't have to go and get your feet dirty and get a leech on your calf and all of those things and you and that's the thing about the nature documentaries is you can sort of see it all and you can go oh isn't it wonderful but you don't have to be tired and cold and covered in mud yeah, and or, I think or, or just or just the actual sense of real fear that you get from being up close and which is huge yeah. like an elephant uh you, you can love and think they're cute in an nature documentary but they're actually freaking freaking scary yeah. and similarly like if you if you i mean i was really lucky to get i got i saw a tiger when i was in india and oh my god i have never felt never ever ever in my life experienced that feeling of prey as I did then I, you know, I just really realized where I was in the world because it was just extraordinary and very very visceral but I keep thinking about you Robin and your gliss gliss I mean you've got to listen to what Helen's saying there so in that sense it's true I mean and um you know we do have to live alongside animals and they make our lives difficult and that's that's one of the big tensions in the world and and I yeah I actually slightly disagree with what you said there Helen I think a lot of people who do live in places where there are dangerous snakes and dangerous spiders um, and big predators 
spend a lot of time, a lot of time trying Depends to push them out of their lives. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I kind of meant that they're not as they they do push, but it's not a it's not a sort of it's not an us and them us and them. They just don't want they just don't want that bit of us to come over here. Maybe Whereas, I don't know. There's a lot of effort that goes into. I mean, and, and like for instance, Asian elephants massively endangered, much more endangered than the African elephant. But they are, but humans and elephants do not mix very well. And then an awful lot, an awful lot of effort goes into keeping elephants out of your, out, out of crops. And I think a lot of people living alongside, yeah, who have an elephant herd which kind of has a has a route through their territory would probably be pretty happy if they were all just got rid of. And that's because it's that that personal feeling about it. Yeah, when it when it directly impacts on your life and livelihood, then uh, then a lot of highfalutin ideas about um, saving biodiversity go out the window. And again, maybe that's that's the flip side of our separation from it when you're sitting outside of it, or you can be a bit more cerebral about it all. Well, if uh, anyone watching, if you have uh, any unwanted uh, any sp unwanted spiders that are wandering around your house, uh, we'll be giving out Helen's address afterwards, and you can send them directly to her. Um, <laughs> this is from Michael, age six. Hello, Michael. Uh, this is uh, Michael would like to know. I'll start start with you, Susie. Michael would like to know how do you know how old bones are? That's a great for you know um us as well working in the last uh the, the later bit of the quaternary the last 50,000 years uh radiocarbon dating is really the the gold standard and essentially the way that that works is there's um let's see how to put it sort of very simply that there's radiocarbon everywhere and when we're alive everything alive is sort of taking up this radiocarbon so plants and animals humans too um, and then when we die, we stop absorbing this radiocarbon and it starts to decay and it decays at a known rate. That's what's really important. So every approximately 5,700 years, uh, there's half the amount of the original radiocarbon left. So yeah, at 5,700 years, there's half. And then another, you know, when you're at almost 12,000 years, there's another half of that, right? And so on and so forth. So this works, um, you know, pretty well for us to to measure then the the radiocarbon in the bones um, or in you know plants as well. So if we have wood or something like that, and we can then um, use our knowledge of the rate that that happens at to calculate how old something is. And when we first started doing this, the science was very new. People couldn't go back very far because we couldn't detect these lower and lower and lower ratios of, of carbon. But now with modern, uh, the modern instruments that we have, we can get back to about 50,000 years um, of time. So that's really, I would say, you know, the, the main way that we can tell. Um, but of course, if we don't have the ability to radiocarbon date something, or if it's past that 50,000 year mark, then we have to start using other methods. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that question. Thank you so much for that question. And uh, Tori, I'm going to ask you uh, now, which one should we have? There's a lot of, uh, we've got a lot of mammoth based questions, by the way. I'm just going to warn you, <laughs> just so you know. We're going to, going to start off with Jenny's Always question, mammoth. though. Before we get before we go back, we're going to have uh, one more human based question, which is Jenny would like to know, how do we determine ages of people stroke civilization? Uh, she's talking about, uh, she's watching on Bone Detectives. There was a talk of, uh, of the Beaker people and very specific times there. So how do you determine that? I mean, it's slightly outside my wheelhouse in terms of the broader question of how archaeologists go about it. For instance, that bone detective episode, we could radiocarbon date 
and the bones were radiocarbon dated, so that gave you a nice age. And similarly, you can you can date pots that have been when they've been fired, and there are aspects of that you can place an absolute chronology onto it. There's the bigger question in archaeology where you know things these periods were worked out before people had access to radiocarbon dating. So that's really that's a phenomenon of really the last 40 years or so in terms of it being used properly, and probably actually only in the last like you know 10, 20 years where it's got really really accurate. So before then we had this idea of sequences, and that was mostly done on the basis of shared culture. And that got very interesting. So you'd look at, say, the sort of types of things that were found with people and using methods like stratigraphy. So, you know, let's say you had a, a nice little section in an archaeological dig and at the bottom you'd have a certain kind of pot that looked one way. And then as you went up, the types of pot changed. They could order those and say, you know, see changes in the material culture and the objects people had with them. You could then associate with sort of different cultural groups, maybe. And that created sort of an idea of building a kind of timeline, a kind of chronology based on culture. And of course, the issues there become quite complicated because how do you know whether if you've if you've kind of tied your culture to your timeline, how do you know when cultures move around? How do you get that kind of sort of independent verification of movement? And that's where some of the really hottest topics of what's going on in archaeology have come from. You know, what's going on? Have the pots moved? Have the people moved? Have you know, cultures come together? Have we seen a changing culture in one area that's spread elsewhere? Those kind of finer details are starting to be unpicked by trying to get independent dating, like radiocarbon dating, or independent evidence from the genetics that are starting to sort of change our understandings of that. And the beaker question is exactly one of those problems for ages and ages and ages there was a debate which basically was do the pots move these amazing beakers which is where the beaker culture comes from um did the pots just move did people just kind of ship their pots around because they were kind of cool pots or did people actually bring the pots with them and the ancient dna evidence is now showing that people did move but there's actually a kind of almost like a, a beaker culture go a beaker culture came from one end but then people picked it up from somewhere else and moved it through and it's, it's a very still complicated and, and controversial topic um but it's great that you start now we've now got these different methods coming together that can challenge assumptions and also move the field on, I think. Brilliant. I have to say, uh, uh, I used to, yeah, sort of in my undergrad confused at first because I thought that I was so, like, what, what was wrong with me? Because I, I was always troubled by the fact that it was like the Bronze Age, you know, in Turkey is not the same as the Bronze Age in Germany or in England. And there must be something wrong with me that I'm like not, you know, kind of comprehending the, the actual dates with the periods. And then I realized, oh no, it's because, you know, it happens at different times mm -hmm. in different places. It's okay, it's not, it's not me, it's the archeology, span <laughs> you know? And so I had to come to accept that. Mm. Um, and that's, yeah, that is a really big um, tension, I think in the field. And it is a really active area of research, especially now because radiocarbon dating is, you know, so well refined. We just got a new calibration curve out this year. That was the big news. Um, to you know, better understand and refine our dates. And so I think um, going forward, there's a, a lot of research and kind of going back to these older chronologies from the last hundred years and these ideas of cultural change um, and actually looking at the timings and how they match up uh, you know, everywhere. It's really, I mean, Helen, I mean, Helen, I thought you should, you should contribute here because you do a lot of work on radioisotopes and things like that as well, don't you? I'm sure that covers, you know, crosses over with your stuff in oceanography. So we, we do and we don't. So one of the things that is interesting, actually, I was going to say about the radiocarbon isotopes is that we can not only use them to date objects, but we can use them to trace movement. Um, because, and, and actually, in, in modern oceanography, we're not necessarily using ancient isotopes, you know, old isotopes, the sort of, you know, thousands of years. But there was a really interesting event that sort of was, I don't think humans should do this again, but it was very useful. 
Uh, and that is all the nuclear weapons tests in the 50s. And basically what that meant is it's called bomb carbon. So basically it created this huge pulse of carbon-14 in the atmosphere, just in general. So everything that... Um, we've been talking about has to do with ratios, right? You you have all these carbon atoms, you count up how many are carbon-14, you count up how many are carbon-12, and it's the ratio between the two that matters. And in the 1950s, all these nuclear weapons tests basically put a great big spike of carbon-14 into the atmosphere. Um, and that has turned out to be spectacularly useful because what we can do, for example, so in the North Atlantic Ocean, there's... Um, carbon is taken up in the North Atlantic and it's carried down into the deep and it kind of slides down into the deep ocean like this and there's a question well how far how fast is it going there and you can actually see because there's a kind of shape if you draw the carbon isotopes you can actually see that there's this is the this is where it's got to since 1950 that in 1950 that bit was up there and you can measure that it goes at 11 centimeters a uh, day or something like that. I can't remember. They're really slow currents. So, so isotopes are useful for all kinds of things. It's not just dating bones, but we can actually trace back where water's been where, and where ancient atmospheres have been using all of that. Yeah, that nineteen that nineteen fifties bomb spike is basic day. So when you say something in radiocarbon dating is like, I don't know, a thousand years before present, well, they actually mean it's a thousand years before 1950 because of the bomb spike. So that is literally the, the present is, uh, yeah, if you like, you know, so BP as opposed to you know, before Christ, but BP is before bomb spike, which is interesting. You've got one hand, like you've got the common era like, defined by Jesus Christ, and then you've got our era present defined by a bomb spike. <laughs> there's a, a sequence, in, sequence beneath, in beneath the planet of the apes which in some ways also uh, refers to that um though i think is is less scientifically accurate um <laughs> the uh this is for everyone here from anonymous is cloning mammoths as a food source a stupid idea susie starting with you oh i don't know that's really more of a tory uh, I, well yes that's more of a tory question personally i'm not too interested in eating mammoth meat myself Come on. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I, I don't think it would taste very good. I don't think it would well, taste surely, very good. I mean, surely yeah, the question, question is, is how how much how much do they belch and fart? That's that that is the you know, one of the defining problems with modern <laughs> methane, right? Yeah. Although, yeah, I did actually I did visit a uh, place in Alabama where they were cloning they were basically taking genes from um make you know, fertilizing effect eggs and making fertilized eggs and sperm slightly convoluted process to do it from a dead animal and then implanting it in a surrogate of something similar and then trying to you know this thing you, in some species you can get that to give birth and they were doing it in cats so they had a wild cat they could implant this embryo in a domestic cat it produced the most miserable kitten i've ever seen there's all kinds of ethical problems with doing this but they were also trying to do it with lions and tigers so if you were going to do this you would probably have to implant the mammoth in an elephant i'm not sure this is not a good idea all that like all the uh gut bacteria the microbiome that would normally go the culture all of that you're just creating this thing that doesn't have any of that um but the problem is you probably could do it if you really wanted to and that probably means that some really rich person is going to do it because then they've got one in their zoo and i think with a mammoth it might actually be possible there's probably enough dna it's recent enough if someone really wanted to but i, I really don't think it's a good idea never mind i mean i'd quite like to see a mammoth. you know in the in the if you could go back with a special telescope into the past kind of thing i would love to see a mammoth just like i'd love to see a giant mower but i think the ethics of doing it just from an animal welfare point of view are so just imagine a creature you know all creatures most most mammals are very attached to their mother 
when they are born, right? That's a really important thing. And if you create an animal which not only is a different species but hasn't got any, they basically will eat each other given the chance. The animal welfare consequences of that alone are horrific. So I think it's not problem free for several reasons. there's several steps in this question I mean the question was is it a stupid idea to clone them for food and I guess it's I would say I would personally say it's kind of a stupid idea to clone them full stop but you know at the end of that yeah this sort of the step down the line is it you know, for food alone I mean they were I mean they were clearly quite tasty uh, elephant is pretty delicious there's various elephant hunting cultures um and you tend to go for the really high value aspects of the animal because obviously it can feed a lot of people one elephant can feed a lot of people for a long time um but there are particular bits of it that are very 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 um, uh, sort of fatty like the trunk the brain the foot the feet of elephants have got these amazing foot pads so if you were to see the bone of an elephant foot it would look like a sort of a, a person wearing stilettos so it's actually on tippy toes it's got a flat foot like this but the actual bones are like that and there's a cartilaginous strut that comes here and then oh here's like a wedge of fat and that foot pad is really like a high value piece of nutrient um i imagine that the average Western consumer would want mammoth steak. They would be so into mammoth foot pad, maybe. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's if if you're <laughs> this, this this is the stupid bit I'm trying to think. But if you're after a kind of a, a sustainable food source, a cloned mammoth would not be the best meat one, I suspect. And then, as Helen says, there's all the ethics of it all. I mean, so it's true. I mean, right now there are two different ways that people are trying to clone mammoths. Clone in inverted commas. There's a um, a group called Suam in South Korea who are supposedly looking into cloning a mammoth using viable mammoth cells. So taking a kind of a whole mammoth cell and popping it into a, like an Asian elephant egg and then zapping it as they do for dog cloning and then popping that into a surrogate. The other approach is to use CRISPR and as a group at MIT in George Church's lab, I think, yeah, he's MIT half a crossover, um, and they are also supposedly um, looking into tweaking the mammoth genome to make it a bit well the elephant genome to make it a bit more mammothy so looking at sort of tweaking things associated with hairiness and fat and things like that and you know, cold ability so um, different kind of haemoglobin and mammoths had different haemoglobin so they could absorb oxygen at cold temperatures it's quite hard to absorb oxygen at whole, cold temperatures so little things like that to kind of make them more adapted to living in the high arctic um and that they say their justification for that is sort of threefold so they have three reasons for doing it they think it's worthwhile doing um first is it's a way of um, restoring to the ecosystem in the high arctic a uh, piece of megafauna a very important keystone species the mammoth which they believe um people, a number of people believe actually including some um people called the zimovs who run the place called Pleistocene park in siberia that if they have mammoths then the uh, ecology, the environment of the permafrost area would be less um, full of trees and it'd be much more open. There wouldn't be so many dwarf shrubs, that dwarf willow, dwarf alder. There'd be a lot more grass and that would, would result in a more stable permafrost that was more resistant to warming in a warming world. The second reason is to bring back, in inverted commas, an animal that was driven to extinction, they think, by humans. I, I mean, I'm jury's out a bit on that one still, I'd say, in my, from my point of view. Third one is as a way of kind of increasing the number of Asian elephants in the world. So as a kind of conservation of the genetics of Asian elephants, in a kind of brand new species, a kind of hybrid elephant mammoth. So by doing that, by allowing elephants to live in the high Arctic, you increase the potential areas that elephants could live in and therefore maybe keep their genes going, if not the species, if Asian elephants go extinct in India and um, what the parts of Asia they're still left. So that's their reasons for it. But again, you still need a surrogate. So uh, George Church has talked a lot about using fake uh, artificial wombs. They haven't 
been invented yet so that's a way down the line so if you were to do it in any timely fashion to maybe get your permafrost stabilization kick in a, a, t- a time period where you could before it was too late you'd need to use a surrogate and the ethics there are problematic elephants are highly social they don't do well in captivity full stop so any kind of captive asian elephant is usually a miserable elephant secondly there's about six million years of evolution between a mammoth and an asian elephant so that's about the same as between you and uh, me and a chimpanzee so the idea of me carrying a chimp to term as a surrogate, and that gives you a sense of how risky it would potentially be for the surrogate mum of the elephant. Um, and if it was born, there's no guarantee that the elephant, the baby mammoth would survive. And in that sense, it's kind of sad. The investment, the trauma to the, to the surrogate, is it worth it? We just don't know. So you have to decide, are the reasons for doing it, do they justify the experimentation? And I would say right now, no, they do not. Um, there is one example of a high. There was one example of a hybrid African Asian elephant baby. It didn't survive, so that gives you a sense. You know, one thing that right. I wonder about is the ecological, oh, the the sort of um, the the ecological argument of the the tundra, the, the the permafrost environment, because I do wonder how legitimate that argument is, since they have been extinct already so long. You know, is sort of the time for that threshold passed? Would it actually make a difference? That's what I wonder about. Yeah. You'd also well, just put some elephants up there with a woolly coat on if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so uh, there we go. The mammoth merkin is uh, what's been looked at there. And uh, by the way, if any of you do want to see a particularly uh, grotesque uh, film involving uh, the cur- eating of an elephant, you can watch uh, Jodorowsky's Sante Sangro, which is a, a thriller about a, a circus knife throw, which has a particularly bizarre elephant funeral scene. Really? There we go. That's my recommendation okay. to you. Um, now we've got about uh, 15 questions left. We have uh, seven minutes to go. Let's see how many we can get through. Um, <laughs> Um, oh, brilliant. An ethics question. So I imagine this one will take less than a minute. Uh, this from V Fish. Um, ethics question, more than a science one. How do you feel about researching remains of ancient civilizations? And that is obviously a problem. To, and uh, V Fish mentions things like, you know, burial sites, etc. Talking to Rebecca Rag sites last week, you know, even t- talking about things like Neanderthal burial sites. How much does that change uh, the way that you uh, a- a- approach those sites? Um, do you want to start on? on- well, sure. Um <laughs> I think, um, you know, in general, sort of saying the study of human civilizations ethically, I don't see an issue, you know, with that. I think that that, that's a separate question in terms of human remains specifically. A lot of that really depends on um, the role, the existence and the role of uh, descendant communities and what their feelings are on the matter. I think there's huge variation. Um, You know, personally, I'm an American, but I work in Um, Eastern Europe and the Near East and, you know, working in the last 10,000 years, there's some, uh, there's some connection and, and, uh, but there's not necessarily cultural continuity, you know, between who these people were and, and the current population. And there's not necessarily, um, the, the situation that we do see in North America where we have, uh, you know, native indigenous American populations who have been disenfranchised through, you know, through colonization um, who there has been a legacy, there's been a history of really problematic uh, interaction with archaeology. Um, and so I think it, it really matters, you know, where you are and how, and, and in those cases, right, a lot of times there are direct links uh, between the people living today and, and the people whose archaeology um, is sort of, you know, uh, at stake. And so I think it really, it, it varies, you know, it's one of those, it depends kind of cop-outs maybe, but um, so I think that any archaeologist, you know, wherever they do choose to work needs to be very aware of those 
um, issues when they're working with human remains. And uh, I think in some cases it is a problem and in some, in some places it's not, in some cases it's not. So personally, I prefer to work with, with animal bones so I don't have to feel sort of bad about, um, I never, that, that was one of the things when I first started getting um, into archeology, span I realized I didn't really like working with human remains too much, too um, morbid for me. <laughs> so I stick, says, the, I stick to the dead animals. <laughs> I stick to the dead animals. <laughs> Sarah Parkak was saying that the uh, when when she was on a while ago uh, about the fact that she now finds that when she's she's a, a an archaeologist known a great book about space archaeology, which is is the view of of uh, terrestrial archaeology from space, not the uh, Martian civilizations that have been kept secret by the government, obviously. And uh, it is, but she said that that her sensation of the older she's got when she holds the skull of a child that the uh, the connection to it and i think that's an interesting thing to i don't know that which is if we don't have enough reverence to some of these importance for these these important sites and that connection then some of the meaning is lost if, if it merely becomes an object of also you shouldn't you shouldn't ever it, it, i think you should ever actually try and remove yourself or your emotions from it because you're you know if you do that then you, or you think you've done that then you maybe make the error of thinking you're objective when you never really are and we always look at these remains and these past civilizations through the lens of our own like cultural bias and how we interpret it is always affected by that it's good to be aware i think of one's emotional response to things so that you can potentially guard against making assumptions about a past culture that is basically based on what you think is normal i think i mean i've drawn to make do you think that, that the question is coming down to is it okay to disturb any ancient grave because that person was buried with the desire that it stayed where it was effectively and yeah you know, and i would say i don't I mean, I, that's a kind of interesting kind of bigger point and i find when my as susie said there's no connection then i i personally feel that my curiosity is kind of over overrides that if there's no current person who it actually matters to then yeah that would be how i feel about it and i think the most important thing to do in that case is as you say to bring reverence to it and to value it and the value comes from the information it passes on but also the value that every human person has I mean, it's just but there I two, two very quick things because we are running rough far over the place seconds, seconds per thing for the question uh, one is that there are much more interesting cases where studying the past might help disease today. Okay, so, so, for example, studying plague victims might have medical benefits today. And there's a whole other set of ethics there. But the other thing, the major point, is that you have your discussions before you do it and not afterwards. Mm. Yeah. And that's yeah. the biggest single thing, I think. And those discussions have to involve a lot of people and actually be serious and include the possibility you don't do it rather than yeah. being a nod to, oh, well, we're going to have our little chat and then we're going to do it anyway. But that's the the other, Yeah. And the other thing is, of course, is like, you know, so for instance, um, I'm not an archaeologist, but presenting bone detectors, a lot of the sites that have been worked on are sites of uh, burial sites that have been uncovered because things are being built. And so archaeologists are brought in then to remove the human remains because human remains are seen to be special. And so they're, they're, they're excavated carefully and with respect. And, the, and part of that respect is doing a really good job to understand those people. Otherwise, they could just go in the bim. And so, you know, it's what, so in that sense, there's an ethical responsibility as a, as a, as a person do, to do it well and to do it properly. And I think it's really great that our planning regulations require that. I think that, that is part of the ethics of building, if you like, the ethics of construction is to value the things you are building on and to value the history and value the path. And I've never met, I've not met a single archaeologist that has, that, that, you know, that doesn't do anything other than treat human remains with incredible respect. And it, they're always moved by them. They all, always are. Even even if they've hunt, handled hundreds and thousands of skeletons, they're always moved by the people that, that, that they've worked on. 
I was, I was an interesting thing to talk to an archaeologist who said that very often sacred sites can be a palimpsest. So in cities, you actually discover that the, the, the contemporary temple was built on whatever the previous religion was. And if you go further down and very often when they're doing excavations or just kind of mending the pipes, you suddenly go, ah, this was still a sacred place. It was for exactly. a different religion, the sacred place. And I think that palimpsest of building of civilization is a very beautiful kind mm -hmm. of vision as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love, I mean, I've, one of the things I've really learned from just doing, from dabbing, dipping my toes into the water of archaeology is been, been yeah. how um, how people value the, their ancestors, real or imagined, if that makes sense. So there's so many examples of ritual sites that get reused where people come back to places that a previous earlier culture has valued. And it's either because there's something in the landscape that's important to everybody or because there is evidence of previous previous people there and that's really powerful to people and so you get you know you get early bronze age barrows being used by late bronze age people as kind of sacred sites and you see um early bronze age people using neolithic sites you know standing stones as places of power and importance and so people are responding to the previous cultures that were there and valuing them and valuing that sense of continuity even though it might be not, not, not a true genetic continuity or a cultural continuity but they're incorporating it into their own systems and beliefs then you see it of course in high resolution in the historical period where you see um, you know mosques used by as churches and, and things like that you know people reuse important and powerful sites for people because as a purpose it has an importance to cultural to all kinds of cultural aspects of life whether it's incorporating an old belief into a new belief to your own advantage or whether it's just because you respond to the idea of people being there before you well it's about identity isn't it and so the, 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 one, of the one of the great things so i'm a trustee of royal museums greenwich one of the great things the director right there says about the museum is that this is where we hold the memories and we don't tell you what to think about them if we do the job well. We allow people to come to it and bring their, you know, w the parts of their identity that relate to this object. But the museum is kind of holding the memory for everyone so they know it's there so they can go back and visit that part of their identity. And then everyone can discuss which part of their identity and how they get different parts of their identity from that same object. And I think that's a really nice thing to consider that you do, as Tori said, if you, you know, you don't want these things to end up in the bin. So someone needs to hold the memory. And that is also a part of the ethics. Do you want to hold the memory so that people can visit it and continue to discuss it and continue to examine their own identity through it? Susie, you look like, sorry, yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I was going to say, just further back in time we go, we have less remains, we have less knowledge and understanding of, you know, the lives that those individuals lived. Um, and they they can you know they can be representatives right of a population of a lost mm -hmm. um, group of people and so I also think that's really incredibly important to consider that as their legacy you know they're having another life you know sort of beyond the grave uh, by telling us more about you know themselves and the the other people um, so you know many times working in caves sort of you know again this end of the last ice age fifteen thousand years ago ten thousand years ago we don't have as many human remains as much later in time. And so every individual is actually really, really important. And I think also can serve, um, you know, as, yeah, again, a reflection of this kind of identity where, you know, what does that mean to us now, to people anywhere, not just people living in that local area, um, the further back in time we, we go, because it's telling us about our shared um, kind of heritage. Brilliant. Thanks.
thank thank you all of you by the way that the, today's episode has now taken the record the theoretical physicist used to have the record for the fewest questions in an hour <laughs> that has now been trumped by you uh and that was Sorry. so no there's so many interesting things there and there are so uh mark by the way i promise i'll ask helen your question about desalination next week uh there's lots of other stuff that we'll hold over and next time we do uh, a similar panel uh we, we'll still have these questions and we'll, and we'll go through those um just a reminder if you can support us via patreon or if you leave something in the tip jar that is fantastic and uh, the 12th of December is the day to put in your diary for the fact that we uh, will have uh, we're going to do a 24 hour live show we've got uh, Chris Hadfield, Helen Sharman uh, Brian Cox, Sophie Ellis-Bexter um, loads of other people uh, as well and they're going to be announced continually so go to the Cosmic Shambles site to find more about that also very soon I'll tell you news of a new series that we're doing for our Patreon supporters um, which includes people like Stuart Lee and Alan Moore doing uh, which I'm thoroughly enjoying making this series at the moment and as I said if you a patreon supporter you will find out all about this very very soon um thank you tori thank you uh helen thank you Susie, and uh thank you to our producer trent burton we'll be back next week as i said if you can start sending them in now uh, we're going to be dealing with different questions about mental health uh see you next sunday at 3 p.m thank you very much for listening Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. 